This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, today in the Loopcast, I have Sarah Aniano, and we are discussing the trucker convoy. So I've been, you know, on and off, I hear about it on Twitter, about the trucker convoy. It's come up in conversations about financing, about sort of questionable financing. Um, and it's come up enough that I think we kind of needed a breakdown of what the trucker convoy is. It starts in Canada, comes to the United States, because I think just looking at it from the Twitter perspective, it's kind of goofy. It's kind of like kind of goofballish people getting lost on the in D.C. They don't know where yes. to go, but there, there's kind of deeper there's a deeper kind of understanding of today. And today, Sarah and I are going to be discussing that. So with that, please welcome Sarah Eniano. How are you? Hello, I am good. Thank you very much for having me on this, this Friday evening. I know everybody's been kind of knee deep in the Russia-Ukraine crisis, but rest assured there are also crises here on American soil. So I'm here to break those down for you and to make you feel worse about everything in general. So thank you for having me. It's actually, that's, uh, that's our goal of the show is to make yeah. people feel worse. <laughs> it's a reality check. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to kind of start off with the origin story of the trucker convoy. So I think when it was in Canada and then it came to the United States and that's the only two facts I really know about it. So if you could give us kind of an origin story, like where is this convoy coming from? How did it develop? You know, mm-hmm. what is that sort of basic origin narrative? Yeah, so one could argue that the U.S. trucker convoy, as we see it now, is a direct copycat attempt of what they did in Ottawa in Canada, where they occupied downtown Ottawa for several weeks. But that isn't really the true origin. I I believe the true origin is just its classic anti-mandate, anti-vaccine messaging strategies that have been going on pretty much since the beginning of COVID. Of course, like you said before, there are deeper implications to what they're doing and why they're doing it. But ultimately, after they saw what I guess they thought was success in Canada, even though it, it really kind of wasn't because they ended up getting shut down by like the cop, they, they decided to attempt it here in America. It was sprawling to begin with and it's sprawling at the end but it started in Atalanto, California at least the people's convoy i should probably clarify there were several convoys but the main one that they've all kind of coalesced into is called the people's convoy but the people's convoy which is kind of the main convoy that we've been looking at started on february 23rd in Atalanto, california they started traveling from there they had a few overnights in cities along the way which provided them not only a chance to rest and kind of hang out, but it also gave the opportunity for other people to join in on the convoy, you know, geographically. And a few days ago, and it, gosh, it might even be longer ago than a few days, but they, they did arrive in the Maryland area at a place called the Hagerstown Speedway, where they have been ever since. So the question is, what is their end game? And that's why I'm hesitant to say that the convoy is over because it is 
literally still like going on for the past several days. They have their convoy travel around the DC Beltway, I think two times, and then they go back to the Speedway and they have a meeting um, with the organizer, whose name is Brian Brazi. Also over the past few days, Brian Brazi and some of his team of organizers have gone to DC to have meetings with politicians such as, oh, you know, Ted Cruz, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a lot of the same characters that come out of the woodwork every time there's an opportunity for them to be black. And that's where we are at right now. I I actually don't know which meetings happened today. I believe there was more meetings that Brian Brazi went to today. But the purpose of these meetings is, I guess, supposed to convince lawmakers to lift the mandate, particularly COVID vaccine mandates, and to lift the public health emergency that I'm not exactly sure will be in place for much longer. I mean, it is always possible that mandates will be lifted in the time that they are doing this convoy. It doesn't necessarily mean it's because of the convoy. I mean, they've already taken credit for mask mandates being lifted, even though those announcements were made before the convoy even even left. So that's where we're at now. They are trying to get their demands met before the elections in the midterm election in the next few months, in the coming fall. So they want urgent change. They want what they want and they want it now and they want accountability. And by accountability, I mean, they want people like Fauci and Pelosi and Biden and whoever to be held accountable for putting these mandates in place, which they think are crimes against humanity. So then it's fair to say that the, the animating core of this movement is anti-vax, anti-mask, or is it much deeper than that? I say anti-mandate because I do believe it is more than just anti-vax. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's anti-vax. There is a ton of vaccine misinformation prevalent in the speeches and the signage that they have at their meeting. And in, you know, reality, I think that we have to understand that there is a political aspect to this as well. And I'm I'm saying this hesitantly because the messaging from the convoy has been that it's not about politics. It's not about left or right. It's just about freedom and, you know, your body, your choice kind of stuff. But it's, it's, it's bullshit. I mean, it's just, it's just simply not true. It is extremely political. It is extremely anti-leftist. It is extremely pro-conservative, pro-Christian, pro-right-wing politicians. And that's why I think it's hard to say that there's any one thing guiding this movement. But I've said to a lot of journalists and a lot of podcasts that have been on about this before, that it's not just about mandates and it's not just about truckers. What is their kind of preferred medium for messaging? Like, like I, I've seen the sort of Telegram channels, but like, are they doing YouTube? Are they doing TikTok? Like what is, how are they getting their sort of messaging and and sort of vision out there? So I think it's evolved a bit over time. I know in the beginning, I was really reliant on Telegram as a source of information, especially these kind of Telegram live audio chats that they were having. But the problem with that is that there were so many different trucker groups, trucker convoy groups that you couldn't even tell really who was the official one. There was no point person. It wasn't until like well into the organization of the convoy, like just before they were leaving, that we even had a clear idea of all the different routes because there were several maps for each convoy. 
but the one that we were taking the most seriously was the People's Convoy because of who was supporting it and backing it. People like Clay Dundas, who like a known uh, Scientology anti-vax attorney that kind of shows face at all these events, not the least of which was January 6th and the Stop the Steal rallies. So, you know, we're looking at an endorsement and we're trying to, to determine what convoy has the most potential to be quote unquote successful. We're looking at endorsement and that's why the People's Convoy was kind of what we figured would be the quote unquote main one. But over time, especially in the last week or so, they have relied on live streamers on YouTube. Some of that is streamed to places like Rumble and even on Instagram. I mean, they have official mes- messaging on, on Instagram now. Their, their page took a little time to gain traction and to get cleaned up. But I would say that now their primary method of communication, at least like to the public, is YouTube and Instagram and their website. They do have an official website. Um, but obviously they'll, you know, communicate on things like Zello and like the CB radio and that kind of thing. And that's mostly amongst themselves. So you kind of touched on it, but I'm kind of curious, what does their endorsement look like? Who's endorsing the People's Convoy? Like, is it is it like mainstream sources? I know you mentioned like Ted Cruz and kind of there's like that dopey video on Twitter of him like giving the thumbs up out of the cab of a of a big yeah. rig. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> beyond those optics, like how would you describe the endorsement and kind of the funding of this group? or of, of this convoy, I should say. Yes, yeah, so the funding is done through this organization that is called the American Foundation for Civil Liberties and Freedom. That's kind of questionable in who and what exactly they are. And I'm, I'm not speaking to that right now because I, I, I just, I, I want more information. I feel like the information I have is very vague and very fuzzy, but I'll just say that they are, you know, a common like anti-vac messaging donation plan, you know, American Foundation for Civil Liberties and Free. That that's very vague. It can mean anything, and it's obviously really you know pro patriot. Would argue that some of it is a little bit sovereign citizen-y. So there's a lot of it's hard to come up with like a clean line of what this foundation does. So that's where the donations are going through. As far as other endorsements, I mean, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ted Cruz, Matt Gitz, Ron Johnson, you know, people that they have met with so far, people on other news networks and other independent, you know, right-wing media have been very vocal about supporting the convoy. What that looks like is really just saying that they support the convoy and thank you, truckers. What has come of that is a lot less exciting. There hasn't really been any change that they're looking for. And I think that's where some of the frustration with the crowd is. So, you know, Ted Cruz comes and talks to people at Hagerstown. That's great and all. They take him on a little ride to the, in front of the Capitol in their big truck and they take a picture. That's fine, too. But deep down, everybody knows that that's not really what they're there for. I think they could see through a little bit the political motives, even though, like, Brian Brazi said, it's not political. And knowing that they have a greater goal than just talking over, you know, meeting, they want their demands met. And some of them have said that they are not leaving until they get that. So then I kind of, you mentioned him already, Brian Brazi or Brazi? He, when he says his name, it's Brian Brazi. So I'm going by 
going by uh, that. What is what is his story? What is is he like? Is he a politician? Is he just an organizer? How do we sort no. of think about him? No, I think that he's been or I think he's been involved in some of like not local politics, but something with, with truckers. I mean, he's he's a, he's a trucker. You know, there's he is one of the actual legitimate truckers in the convoy. I don't believe he started out as the main speaker you know it was a lot of lay dundas was kind of doing that but after their overnight in indiana where they had this really big rally like really really big rally and lay dundas was up there just screaming for freedom and you know gotta defeat the tyrannical left and the government entities and all that it was really really strong and powerful and people were holding their hands in prayer and and she was just taking the house down and then Next thing you know, Lady Dundas was just gone. There's a lot of, I think, theories out there. There's a lot of statements, official and unofficial, as to why she left. First, it had to do with something like with her family. And then somebody said that she was asked to leave because she didn't want to go to D.C. I think what really happened is that there was some kind of legal issue that she was associated with that it kind of probably just created bad optics for the convoy overall. And that's why she left. So once she left then it really did seem to all fall on Brian Rossi's shoulders because you, you you just need a point person. There's other people that are involved in, in speaking and helping to coordinate the logistics, but when it comes to the voice of the movement who's speaking on behalf of it, it's 100% Brian Rossi. And whether or not he wanted that leadership position, that's what he got. Interesting. So... Right now, if I understand it correctly, they're in Hagerstown Speedway. So it's a town in Maryland that's like 45 yes. minutes south of D.C. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're just kind of circling the beltway. Yes. So I guess like the first question would be, how successful are they being in just circling the beltway? Are they stopping traffic, actually, you know, getting their political demands met? And then kind of sub point to that on Twitter, I've noticed that a lot of like D.C. friends and D.C people in the extremist communities are kind of tracking this. And the big theme is people are driving on the beltway, you know, throwing the middle finger to the the truckers, telling, you know, basically telling them to go fuck themselves. So, you know, you know, what is their involvement like? And, you know, what is the reception? I mean, yeah, they have also acknowledged that they have not necessarily been super well received by the locals of the the DC Beltway <laughs> because it is a frequently trafficked oh. road. People are just trying to get from point A to point B. Has it been successful in terms of getting their demands met? Not even close. Have they gotten meetings? I mean, has Brian Rossi gotten meetings? Yeah, I don't really think they had to circle the Beltway to do that or travel across the country. But you know, that's happening. Whether or not anything comes to that, we'll see. But frankly, even the convoy itself, they've had some issues. You know, there's been some accidents, nothing too serious, thank goodness. I don't know that it's been super disruptive because I think maybe once was a time when they wanted to stop traffic and slow everything down and cause a big ruckus. But then they learned that legally they have to travel at at least 55 miles per hour on the Beltway. So basically, they're just going around the Beltway, trying to stick together as well as they can, which has also been difficult at a at no more, no less than 55 miles per hour. And then they go back to the speedway. And like, they don't seem to be able to like actually do laps. Like I think somebody posted a map 
I think it was actually a right-wing journalist of kind of, we had to cross the R- Wilson River twice and then yeah. pulls up the map and it's literally, all you've done is cross the northernmost point and the southernmost point. You haven't even done yeah. the full. Yeah. It, it just seems yeah. like so disorganized. It It is disorganized and they will they will tell you that they have it under control as much as they can, but there's a new issue every day, which seems like such a waste of time and, and fuel and energy just to not even really circle DC in any, any meaningful way. I mean, there's, you know, there'll be like a few people on the overpass and then they wave and then they honk and, and then they, they go home. And some people have gotten a bit wiser, at least from what I see in Telegram saying, like, hey guys, so how how long are we doing this part? You know, the driving thing, because we could drive around in circles for the rest of our lives. As far as they care, they don't they don't care. What are we actually doing to make a change? And that's when you start to hear these trust the plan. These things take time. Trust the process. We're not leaving in. We're not doing this in vain. We're not leaving until we get what we want. And you see a lot of these similar strategies, honestly, in cults. This is what people do when prophecy fails, like Leon Festinger said, they will do anything they can to keep people believing in the prophecy. And I, I don't want to say that this is a cult, because I, I don't believe that at all. I don't think that Brian Brazi is that kind of leader, at least not from what I've seen yet. He seems really level-headed. He seems kind of just like a nice guy, maybe with undesirable political beliefs that maybe got himself into a pickle and doesn't really know what to do now with this with this unwanted power that he's wielding so that's that's where we're at right now at least in terms of what what their expectations are i'm sure there was a meeting tonight it might be going on now actually i'll I'll catch up with that after but that's that's where i get my information too i just get it on the live streams interesting I mean, do you see any overlap from other communities within the People's Convoy? Is it, do you, A, is the expectation that you would see QAnon people or Bash or whatever? Yeah. I mean, are they within the People's Convoy or is it so, it's sort of ideologically kind of its own thing? There's no real overlap as far as ideas or in conspiracy theory, belief in conspiracy theories go. There, there's, uh, I'll start by saying that depends on who you ask. <laughs> if you ask them, they are all unified on one very non-political, secular, you know, ground. That's not true. I have seen QAnon messaging extremely blatant, you know, where we go when we go all just straight up cues. A woman who's been a part of the negative 48 cult down in Dallas, which is they're waiting for you know, JFK to, to come back and, and, you know, help run the country. She was there and speaking to the crowd one day. She said she was a proud Protzmanian, which means um, Michael Protzman, who's the leader of, of the Negative 48 cult. So the QAnon messaging is really, really obvious. I don't know how prevalent it is, but it's obvious. There's a lot of pro-Trump flags. There's a lot of anti-Biden flags. There's a lot of we the people flags. They don't talk about Trump a whole lot. A lot of his like paraphernalia is there, like MAGA stuff. And like I said, Trump stuff, the election was uh, rigged stuff. There are some apparent overlaps with certain extremist groups that I don't want to talk about here because A, I'm not an expert in it and B, I'm a little concerned about it because of some things that have been happening to researchers and journalists 
covering the convoy in the past few days. But I guess to answer your question is, yeah, there's some QAnon stuff. There's some sovereign citizen kind of stuff. There's regular old far right politics stuff. But then there's also, you know, there's a global elite of strong willed cabal members that want to take over the world stuff. So it, it really ranges in how crazy it can get. But the craziest of the craziest is there, even if they don't make that obvious. Interesting. So I, I want to maybe ask, like, I should have asked this kind of earlier, but like, mm-hmm. how would you describe the demographics and then the numbers of people in the people's convoy? Like when, when I when I talk about demographics, not just like if they're white, black, whatever, but also like you know, what is their education? What is their financial state? Like, because I asked this because like with one six, you start digging right. into the one six data and then it's like, you immediately hit the lady who, you know, you know, got a private plane to the Capitol yeah. or the dude, you know, I think the Oath Keepers kind of indictment where they just buy, you know, $30,000 worth of guns, just, you know, mm-hmm. for shits and giggles, I guess. But when we start picking apart the the people's convoy, the demographic, what do, what is the the common thread? Is there anything that kind of stands out to you? It's a lot of white people. I mean, let's get that out of the way. It's a lot of white people. I'm not saying it's all white people, and they will be the first to point that out. They'll be like, "Look, this person isn't white. See, this isn't a white supremacist thing." I can't say for sure that I I know their level of education or or financial status. I I can say though that people claim to have given up like their jobs and 401ks and and other stuff just to join the convoy in the first place, which is concerning given that it was disorganized and doesn't have a queer end or a queer promise. I believe it's absolutely an overlap of, I'm going to say January 6th crowd, but I can't say for sure that these people were at January 6th, but it is a lot of the same ideology that's informing this movement, which is that the global cabal has lied to us, the political elites and the Dems have lied to us, and we will reveal the truth, and they will reveal the truth for us on our terms. I mean, I guess, like, really, it's like, how many of these people are actual truckers? Like, mm, like I that just, is not, yeah, that's not the majority at all. That's not the majority, okay. No, but so, it, but it looks, it looks, they make it look that way because trucks are very big and imposing and American. They're very loud. They have to do with capitalism. They they travel. They see the country. They bring goods and services. The world collapses without the truckers. So uh, there is a bit of this oracle situating of the working class versus the elite, the little man, bootstraps kind of rising up uh, against those in power and making this look like it is about some sort of underdog revolution. But again, there's not nearly as many trucks and there never has been nearly as many trucks in the convoy as there have just other types of of vehicles. Interesting. So when you you start looking at the rhetoric and the imagery and the sort of conceptualization, what parallels do you see? I think like the the mind immediately jumps to one-six but are there any other sort of parallels that kind of inform your your analysis? Or is it just like, you know, there's just such a clear line from 1-6 to the trucker convoy 
that there isn't really a need to kind of break down, to, to expand and, and kind of break down the rhetoric? I think the biggest theme here, the most prominent theme that I see in here in the live streams and on social media is paranoia. They are extremely paranoid about Antifa infiltration. They are extremely paranoid about going into D.C. and it being a trap. Now, of course, January 6th was a little bit different in that regard because they, the, the whole point was to go to D.C. and they had the endorsement of the, the president at the time to do so. But I still saw before January 6th very similar paranoia about Antifa. They are constantly, constantly telling people that if there are any bad actors or any bad apples or any violence or any dissent, to not trust those people. They're already grooming attendees of the convoy to believe that anything that goes against their quote-unquote peaceful protest message is probably suspicious and they should be you know, outed from the, the convoy for that reason. And when you do that, it immediately redirects blame for things like January 6th back to the left. It's like impossible in their mind that anybody in their cause has any ill intentions, which is just an ignorant thing for anybody to think on any side for any movement. You cannot predict the behavior of humans, especially when they have been at this speedway and not really showering and not eating very well for, you know, a week. And, and this, I think they're on like day 15 or 16 of the convoy now, which means that some of them have been away from their jobs and their families and their homes for over two weeks. I don't think that human behavior is predictable enough under those circumstances to know for sure who is going to do what. So I would say that the, the most concerning thing and the most concerning parallel between this and things like J6 is just paranoia. That's kind of scary because it almost, yeah. like I was thinking about like, what is the long-term goal of this group, right? And you're, you're kind of pointing out that paranoia is the major theme and like paranoia is just like, like, it almost seems like you're like, there's that seed and then it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Yeah. Like it's trucker convoy today, yeah. whatever else is next. And like, is it's sort of the expectation. Well, not, not, let's not say expectation. I mean, mm-hmm. are you already seeing the rhetoric? Anticipation, I guess. Anticipation, Anticipation might be a better word, yeah. I mean, how are they evolving? Like, I think somebody, you know, jokingly asked, like, where do they see themselves in five years? But like, yeah. you know, as you're kind of studying the rhetoric on Telegram and YouTube, you know, how are they evolving? How are they setting themselves up? So, you know, their prophecy might fail, but they're going to keep right. going at it. I'm constantly going back in my mind to Richard Hofstadter's work in the the 60s. And there was this article, this essay he wrote in, I think, 1964. It's called The Paranoid Style of American Politics. And it was about the right wing's tendency to be paranoid of things like the Illuminati and the Freemasons. And then you have like the Red Scare, you know, the anti-communist stuff. It's all the same things that we see now. There's really very little that's original 
in their messaging that we haven't seen before decades and decades before noia informed things like the protocols of the elders of zion which informed the the holocaust so there's and i don't i don't want to say that these people are going to start the holocaust but it is impossible to completely separate the two when so much of the same fears and so much of the same scapegoating is guiding their motivation they genuinely think that people like Fauci and anybody else who's kind of controlled or, or guided the mandates over the past two years, even though some of those people are Trump, need to be held accountable. You do see things like Nuremberg 2.0 in these chats. When I got a hold of the Give, Send, Go data, the, the donation data, for the Freedom Convoy, and that was for Ottawa, and over half of which came from U.S. donors, people were calling for Trudeau to, to, be, to be publicly hanged. I mean, there's, like I said, you can't predict the motives of every single person in these spaces. And I'm sorry, I think I forgot the initial question, but, but I, I, I guess that's, that's what stands out to, to me the most, is, is not the, oh, we have good optics, look at our happy crowd and our peaceful protest. It is the rogue actors who take that and appropriate it in a way that validates their willingness to do something extreme or violent. How much of it is real? Like, I, if something mm -hmm. is online, you, you immediately have to assume there's a degree of, like, astroturfing or kind of sure. fudge, fudging you know, its its size and its popularity. So are you seeing a lot of astroturfing? Are you seeing a lot of like kind of false consensus building or, you know, this is kind of a real, real thing. Like it's every kind of the behavior we're seeing online is accurately reflected into meat space or real space. Yeah, I think it would be right to, to assume that this is all 100% authentic and that we should trust every single campaign or post that we've seen on social media. I don't know exactly how much of it is is not authentic or is astroturfing or whatever, but that's a part of why I've pivoted, at least in this on this subject, at least in terms of the convoy, I've pivoted to watching more of these live streams because they they do give me a firsthand look at what's really going on. Because the social media is messy, it's, it's spammy, they don't have a really good hold on, on controlling what goes on in those chat spaces, because that's kind of just the nature of Telegram, to be honest. I, I never claim to know with 100% certainty, unless I have proof, whether or not an account that I'm seeing is 100% authentic. However, especially at the, their overnight in, in Indiana, where there was... And I'm just really bad at predicting numbers. If, if you put 30 people in a room and I walk in, I'll be like, oh, 100 people are here. I'm just like not good at that aspect. <laughs> so when people have asked me, I have like a, like a, like a panic attack. I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm just not good at math. But, you know, it, it's enough. It was enough in Indiana that it was a very visibly gripping image. It was a sizable crowd. It was a loud crowd. And I, I always maintain that it does not have to be the biggest crowd or the biggest movement to make a difference, whether that's a good difference or a bad difference. 
but then you also have you know you said is it is it real i have to wonder if a lot of even what i'm seeing is real on these live streams except i knew that reporters were there and that the world was watching you know on youtube and i wanted to make it look like a formidable cohesive movement i would act really really happy when the cameras were around i would probably self-censor some of my doubts because that's what people do in person and that's what they don't do online people are far less willing to self-censor online because of things like being you know the alias username or or you know maybe you're just having a private chat with somebody that is not public i can't assume that everything i'm seeing is real either and i think that's what people mean when they talk about optics because when Brian Brazi goes on stage and he's like, oh, people are trying to say that our movement is fizzling, but I, I've heard people talk about that firsthand, you know, in like the crowd. <laughs> I, I hear dissenting opinions in the crowd on the live stream. Um, there's only so much that you can control at that point about the optics. So when you're saying like a live stream, you're, it's like YouTube, Periscope, or Twitch, and then I guess this is kind of like in the weeds researcher question. Like, how mm -hmm. do you, like, is it difficult to kind of preserve that? Like, I know like with Twitter, there's a set methodology that you can download content, yeah. you know, Facebook and YouTube, there's like a set methodology, but then you kind of veer into video and then it's like, okay, like I can get the video, but then where do I store it? How do I analyze it, et cetera. So yeah. if you could like, you know, describe one of these live streams, what is the platform and, you know, what are some difficulties for you as a researcher to kind of preserve and kind of analyze this material? Yeah, so I have been watching live streams mainly on YouTube, which I think that they were surprised that they were able to do so. I think they thought that, you know, YouTube was going to descend on them and try to censor them, but actually that hasn't really happened that much. I don't know where else they're streaming. I'm, I'm, I know they're streaming, like Breitbart News has streamed some things on Facebook and people will take their streams and put it on Rumble. But I have been watching YouTube mostly because I'm interested in what the mainstream has access to. It's a part of why Instagram has been the center of like my thesis study because you know, you're always gonna find weird shit on 4chan, but I'm fascinated by what people are able to access on the far more user-friendly, accessible and popular platforms. So you know, because I haven't actually collected any of this data for a formal study i haven't really had like a data collection methodology but i do try to treat this more like a like a journalism project so when i'm watching the live streams which recently the streamers have been taking down the live streams immediately after streaming i'm not sure why i think they're scared of getting shut down or something but when i'm watching the live streams i will kind of take notes and i'll, I'll put that on twitter in real time and that what that gives me is basically like the minutes of these meetings. I try to get direct quotes and you know I'll pause it and like transcribe it and make sure that it's as accurate as I can as I can hear it. But when I put that on Twitter, I'm, I'm also careful not to frame it in an incorrect way. You know, I want to be fair, but I also try to make sure that I am always putting a critical eye on it because of my my position as a, a obviously a leftist researcher I've, I've never made that you know a secret but that's basically all i've been doing is is transcribing i mean in the beginning when i was listening to these live chats on telegram i would just take out a pen and paper 
and just take notes, 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 notes. And that was weeks ago because I was like, wow, there's this crazy shit happening in these chats. And I don't think anyone else is, is listening. And maybe it's only 20, 30 people, but I'm hearing people talk about adrenochrome and child trafficking. Like I'm hearing people get indoctrinated in real time. And those small stories, those small slice of life interactions that we see in these corners of the internet, I think is, is really important. So I guess my only thing has been to try and be as much on the ground as I can be without actually being on the ground. Interesting. That's kind of, that just kind of blows my mind because I mean, these, I'm assuming these people are older, right? They're not, they're not like Seems 20s, to older, but there's young people. It's yeah. it's hard to get the true demographic, but yeah, are there a lot of old white guys? Like, yeah, of course there are. <laughs> it's just, it, I'm kind of just picturing like an old white guy on Twitch. You know, that's kind of the streaming platform that I use. And it's just like, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's kind of a weird image. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know if they're on Twitch. I mean, they, they could be. I actually, I don't know for sure. I hadn't, I hadn't checked Twitch. I was just relying so much on, on, on YouTube that I didn't really bother checking anywhere else. But it is interesting in that regard because once the streamers, and there's like a handful of streamers that we seek out because they're consistent and they're good at it, once they started getting like traction, I mean, I was watching live stream views go from like the tens to the hundreds last week to this week being like a thousand or over 10,000 viewers at a time. So I've, I've seen them get more popular in real time. And when they start streaming, people will come up to them and be like, oh my God, like, I love you. Thank you so much for doing this work. Like, I was so excited to meet you. And so you're seeing what happens when content creators start to gain an audience and maybe a little bit of, of an ego. So that has been interesting to see these just like old trucker guys, like kind of become these like weird pseudo celebrities in their own little communities. That's interesting. Like you yeah. going from 10 to a hundred to 10,000, Yes, they found their audience, but are they like, I, I, there's like some, something that I've learned, like there's kind of a disconnect between an audience and a political constituency. How much of it is like, people are just showing up to see the memes, the freak show, the weirdness, and how much of it is actual political people you would consider constituents or political yeah. believers like is is that growth in audience should we consider that a growth in political influence i believe that no matter who your audience is if your word is getting out there that it matters that being said there's for sure people like me and just people that are frankly coming with maybe not very nice intentions to just like laugh at them watching the streams. I mean, I, I see people like trolling the live chats on YouTube. Even my followers have started to say that they were watching the streams. It has gotten, no matter what they say on the Hagerstown stage, it has gotten mainstream media attention. And I know because I'm a part of why, <laughs> like I, I've been speaking to, I spoke to NBC like a month ago about this. So that, that's pretty mainstream, but it has getting, been getting more media attention. And I think because of that, people are maybe a little more aware that it's going on because weeks ago, I kind of had to explain to people 
that this was even a thing because at one point it was just talk and then over the course of the last two weeks we saw it materialize so then in terms of that media coverage of the mainstream yeah. media is there a difference between how fox is covered like this is obviously yes but like you know do you what is the difference between how fox is covering it versus nbc versus msnbc like what do you when you look at that media environment you know what are the differences in that coverage hmm yeah well i mean i, I can speak to what i've i've kind of absorbed i do find that the new york times is one example that kind of just like put out a couple articles about it and then brushed it aside. C framed it a lot differently. They framed it as like, hey, like we should really be concerned about this. Washington Post has been kind of neutral because they have people on the ground and, and trying to kind of paint a more, you know, accurate firsthand picture while also being fairly honest about what that picture is. On March 1st, a different convoy organizer Kyle Sepchik, who's, who's, or, whose convoy never really got off the ground, so his organization ended up being absorbed into the People's Convoy, he went to the National Mall in D.C. and tried to have this kind of rally there, which ended up in him just speaking on stage to pretty much only media and camera. And so when that happened, people, and by people I mean people who were kind of anticipating and, and concerned about the convoy, thought that the whole ordeal was over. They were like, ha ha, that was funny, that failed. But then you fast forward to this week where they have had meetings in DC. The convoy is in Hagerstown, Maryland. They're at the Speedway and they have been for a while. Like to their credit, the media, a lot of the media got it wrong last week. And I think that there's, it's hard. It's, it, it, there's a question of whether or not we should even talk about them at all, talk about these people at all. People say that, you know, their voice doesn't matter, but I disagree. I think their voice very much matters. It's not a voice that I agree with, but it's a voice that exists. It is a people that we have in our daily lives. We just don't, you know, see them voice their opinions on, on YouTube for eight hours a day. And I, I do think their voice matters whether we like it or not. I do think there's a right and a wrong way for the media to frame it. I think that media should be critical of it i mean there's certain media that we expect to not be critical of it you know if oann and newsmax are covering this they're probably celebrating it you know if sean hannity or steve bannon are talking about it i'm sure they put a very positive spin on it but it has frustrated me with how mishandled i think it was by the media up until this point is there any specific way that it's been mishandled or is it sort of mishandled in the same way that most online movements are kind of kind of mishandled when they you know enter our the real space or enter our sort of the real world I mean is there I mean I guess we could frame it this way like it, mm -hmm. would you give any suggestions to covering this in a better way I mean, I would pay attention I would I would I would beg people to pay attention I mean I know that the the Ukraine crisis is is horrifying and and extremely important and far more likely to make a more immediate impact on the, the safety and well-being of, of just the whole world and so i understand why a lot of the attention had to pivot to that because that started on what march 24th 
which was like the day after the convoy left Atalanta. So basically from the start of the actual convoy, the attention was like diverted elsewhere. So I get it, but I do think there needs to be, and I say this all the time, but there needs to be a concerted effort in news organizations to have people who are experienced in disinformation and extremism and misinformation and conspiracy theories to report on this stuff. Otherwise, it doesn't really seem like they know what they're seeing. You know, one reporter said to me like, oh yeah, like they they all look really happy there. And, and you know, some people said that they, they were vaccinated there and they were, they said that they weren't even on the right. And I'm like, okay, do you believe that? Do you, do you believe what what you what they're telling you or do you believe what you see and what you hear and the energy i watched this uh, speaker a former governor of missouri i think go up on stage and call all the left tyrants and liars and he told the crowd that they have to get their country back and it was a rallying cry and then i think he went on like steve bannon later that night or something like that's bad. That's really, really dangerous. That could have violent or severe ideological implications down the line, maybe in the not so distant future. Again, we think about elections. And so I would, I would beg the media to not just think of what's newsworthy right now, but to think of what could be newsworthy in a bad way in the future and how can media play a role in framing it in an honest way that looks at both sides without actually both sidesing it and i know that's that's hard it seems like a contradictory statement but there is a reality here and the reality is that anytime anyone at this convoy has said that it's not political they're lying it's just not true that's interesting. I kind of want to, something that you mentioned that we mentioned earlier, and I kind of want to revisit it. And that that's the convoy's relationship to politics, because what really fascinates me is this federal focus. We're going to go to, right. to DC, because I know we haven't done shows on the anti-vax movement, but the anti-vax movement, like uh, from my reading and my understanding of it is that they're very localized, right? They're, they're going to state houses, they're doing yeah, local so refer- referendums, but this group seems to immediately aim for the federal. Was that always the intention or was it just like, it was the aesthetic of we're going to truck across the USA and really give it to those politicians. And yeah. I mean, I guess yeah. it really just speaks to the, like, what is their political plan? Like why, why the need for federal action and federal attention? Well, yeah, I, I think it's a bit of, of both of what you said. There is something to be said about the optics of being in and around D.C., this thing they keep pushing about, quote unquote, surrounding D.C., even though that's really not actually what they're doing, but they keep saying that. And you asked, you know, what could they accomplish in D.C. that they couldn't accomplish at their you know, state capitol? I don't think they can accomplish what they want to accomplish at their state capitol because what they want really is to go back to how it was before COVID ever existed. They want no vaccine mandates. They want accountability for the politicians. I know I've said that three times, but it's it's just, just such a core 
strategy of, of their messaging, this core thing that they're calling for accountability. And I still don't know what they mean by that. They want to punish, they want Fauci to be punished for, for what, what they think he did. The whole basis of their demands are based on this idea that everybody was wrong about COVID and that the vaccines don't work and that the mandates don't work and that there is no public health emergency. And that is incorrect. That is factually incorrect. I understand that COVID has somewhat improved. You know, hopefully it stays that way. I'm not super optimistic, but in their world, the whole thing was a big sham. And they think, and I've seen this multiple times, they think that as long as they have these quote unquote, like emergency act powers uh, under the public health emergency that the government can control them to do anything. I've seen people say that what's happening in, in Ukraine will happen here soon because the mandates being enforced is a hint at that. And it's, it's once again, rooted in something that is not true. Now, there was an anti-mandate movement demonstration in D.C. in late January. They, that group is still around. That, that organization is, is still around. And I do think they plan to do something in April, I think, in L.A. maybe. But I would remind people that these speeches are constructed around this idea that we are going to, and I quote, take our country back take America back and remind the government that they work for us. These are like the core kind of catchphrases that, that are repeated every single morning and every single night at these convoy meetings. They're not saying they want to take Texas back or Arkansas back or what have you. They want to take America back. And I think that in their mind, that can only be done in D.C., so then kind of fast forward to, I think it was this week, you have the image of Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Ted Cruz, who yeah. like, he's very obviously pained and he's kind of fumbling with a mm -hmm. Starbucks mm -hmm. cup and sitting down with the, with the members of the convoy. Yeah. How, like, how are politicians co-opting the convoy and kind of using the rhetoric of the convoy? Is it, are they doing that? Because I know like, Ted Cruz kind of did a photo op, but I don't, I'm not seeing like a lot of his, the language of the convoy reflected in his speeches or ideas. It's just like typical Ted Cruz. <laughs> yeah, I mean, typical Ted Cruz is a lot of what they, they talk about. Some people don't like him in that group. Some people think that he's like a rhino or whatever. In the meeting that Ted Cruz and, and Johnson had with, with Brian Brazi and his convoy organizers, Ted Cruz was very vocal about his support of their mission. You know, Brian Rossi would say this is unconstitutional and Ted Cruz would be like, sure is. And then somebody else would say something in the convoy group and Cruz would be like, yep, totally agree. So it was a lot of just like nodding and like agreement, which doesn't really achieve much. I also think that notably in that meeting, reporters were in the room and one reporter from the Daily Beast was trying to push back a little bit on Brian Brazi's goal and he you know asked him but you know, there's so little mandates left you know what are you fighting for and and they got a lot of pushback including from Ted Cruz who frequently demonizes the the mainstream media and so I I do think actually that that Ted Cruz's rhetoric and Marjorie Taylor Greene's rhetoric and Lauren Boebert's rhetoric and anybody else who's you know expressed 
these similar beliefs fall completely in line with that of the trucker convoy attendees, even if they don't have any intention of actually doing anything about what they asked. Because some, a lot of these meetings have ended up in like, well, you guys got to go out and vote in, in the midterms. Thanks for, thanks for coming. And that's their solution, which is not a satisfactory solution to the convoy attendees because they don't want this to be fixed by voting. Interesting. So I think we've answered just about every question I have. So I guess uh, this brings us to our traditional last question, which is give us something to chew on, something to think about. So this is generally the, the big open-ended question. So like, what are, what is it like a takeaway from our under, you know, what should be our takeaway from understanding the convoy? I guess the first thing I would say that it's, it's not over yet. So you know, I, I can't say that the story has a conclusion that we could learn anything from just yet. But regardless of what happens with this convoy, whether it materializes into something bigger or just kind of dies a slow, painful death, which is frankly how it feels right now, this group will return. They will come back to voice their opinion maybe still on the mandates, maybe on something else. Their rhetoric is rooted in something that is centuries old, which is the suspicion of powers that be. It's extremely Christian. They always open in prayer at their, at their meeting. It's a lot less complicated than I think people are making it. I think what they want is a more traditional conservative society. And that's what they're fighting for. Again, it's not about the mandates. Great insight. Thank you so much. That was Sarah Aniano. You can follow her at, I think it's at coolfacejane, I think is your... That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> That's your Twitter handle. <laughs> That's my uh, Twitter handle. And I have to remind everybody on these podcasts when I say that, that my Twitter handle came from like a rap name generator, like Childish Gambino, so that he used a rap name oh. generator to make his name. So I was like, well, I'm really shitty at like coming up with nicknames. So I guess I'll do that too. And that was like <laughs> the third option that came up. I was like, okay. The that legendary Wu-Tang name generator. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so too bad I'm not, I'm not a rapper. I'm just a scholarly researcher with this really goofy Twitter handle, Coolface Jane, which is my, my middle name is Jane, which is where that comes from. Well, thank you so much for uh, <laughs> being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much.